Welcome to another installment of the Convivial Society. This time around, some brief reflections on human beings entangled in technological systems. You may have seen or heard about Elon Musk's recent Neuralink demonstration involving some pigs who weren't altogether cooperative. Neuralink is the four-year-old Musk company working on a computer brain interface. Musk claims that Neuralink technology will one day cure, among other ailments, blindness, paralysis, and mental illness. Additionally, he believes it will dramatically empower human beings by augmenting our mental and even physical capacities. In anticipation of his recent Neuralink event, Musk's Twitter feed alluded to matrix-like wonders to come. Musk also tends to tout this project as a safeguard against the future threat of superintelligent AI. It's how we'll keep pace with the machines. With a high bandwidth brain machine interface, Musk explained, I think we can go along for the ride and effectively have the option of merging with AI. Needless to say, there's every reason to be skeptical about every one of those claims. As Antonio Regalado put it in his discussion of the event, it amounted to little more than neuroscience theater. That said, the hopes Musk has expressed are illustrative of a dynamic that has already been playing out in more prosaic everyday contexts. The nature of this dynamic becomes apparent when we ask a hypothetical question concerning computer brain interfaces. Who is being plugged in to what? Or, to put it another way, who is the dominant partner, the computer or the brain? Are we plugging into a system that will serve our ends, or are we being better fitted to serve the interests of the technological system? I suspect that Musk would say the question misses the point. There is no dominant partner. Rather, the relationship would be, as he put it, symbiotic. Clearly, he talks about it as if it will prove to be an enhancement of the human condition and one that will help us survive the threat of AI-induced obsolescence. But we could just as easily imagine that the human interest will be superseded by the imperatives of the machine, that the person will be bent to the service and logic of the machine. There is ample precedent. When a system becomes sufficiently complex, the human element, more often than not, becomes a problem to be solved. The solution is either to remove the human element or otherwise retrain the person to conform and recalibrate their behavior to the specifications of the machine. Alternatively, society develops a variety of therapies to sustain the person who must now live within a techno-economic milieu that is hostile to human flourishing. In other words, the end being served is not human flourishing. It is the functioning of the technological system. Musk's rationale for Neuralink is just an overhyped case in point of the logic. The answer to the problem posed by technological systems that have grown dangerous is not to reconsider the advisability of building such systems, Rather, it is to further technologize the human being so as to assure survival in a technological milieu that has grown fundamentally hostile to human well-being. It clearly recalls the instinct that seeks to solve a crisis by escalation 
which Ivan Illich identified in Tools for Conviviality. In the same work, Illich wrote, there are two ranges in the growth of tools, the range within which machines are used to extend human capability and the range in which they are used to contract, eliminate, or replace human functions. In the first, he continued, man as an individual can exercise authority on his own behalf and therefore assume responsibility. In the second, the machine takes over, first reducing the range of choice and motivation in both the operator and the client, and second, imposing its own logic and demand on both. Insidiously, these developments are typically packaged as either matters of convenience or liberation. But the promises never materialize, in part because they veil a greater entanglement in systems and institutions that are ultimately designed to serve their own ends, in part also because it is never clear what exactly we are being liberated for other than further consumption of the products and services and goods offered to us by the techno-economic systems. It was a dynamic eloquently described by Lewis Mumford when, in the mid-20th century, he asked, why has our age surrendered so easily to the controllers, the manipulators, the conditioners of an authoritarian technics? Here is his answer. The bargain we are being asked to ratify takes the form of a magnificent bribe. Under the democratic authoritarian social contract, each member of the community may claim every material advantage, every intellectual and emotional stimulus he may desire, in quantities hardly available hitherto even for a restricted minority. Food, housing, swift transportation, instantaneous communication, medical care, entertainment, education. But on one condition that one must not merely ask for nothing that the system does not provide, but likewise agree to take everything offered, duly processed and fabricated, homogenized and equalized, in the precise quantities that the system, rather than the person, requires. Once one opts for the system, no further choice remains. In a word, if one surrenders one's life at source, Authoritarian techniques will give back as much of it as can be mechanically graded, quantitatively multiplied, collectively manipulated, and magnified. The temptation, in other words, has been to assume that the goods we are offered by the current techno-social regime are the goods that we, in fact, need to thrive as the sort of creatures we are. This is why any serious consideration of the questions raised by technology must eventually become a consideration of what it means to be human and what shape a just society should take. These are, of course, political questions of the first order, or at least they used to be until they were superseded by the imperatives of economic growth. A few years ago, I suggested that there was a tradition of humanist technology criticism worth engaging. I contemplated at one point drawing up a proposal for something like a humanist tech criticism reader. Maybe someday something will come of that. The general idea that holds this tradition of critics together is the conviction that some account of what people are for and of the conditions under which they flourish should inform our evaluation of technology. 
I recognize now, as I did then, that this can be contested and contentious territory. But I fear that unless we figure out how to at least raise these questions, we will proceed down a path toward de facto posthumanism. At the end of my reflections a few years back, I suggested that a humanist critique of technology entails a preference for technology that operates at a human scale, works toward human ends, allows for the fullest possible flourishing of a person's capabilities, does not obfuscate moral responsibility, and acknowledges and respects certain limits inherent to the human condition. I leave you with those observations today. I trust that they can at least be the point of departure for productive conversations.